he has written on um, the uh, uh, United States, on uh, politics, on uh, the, um, um, the social order of uh, um, information, uh, opinion formation, and also on the world as a whole. So uh, world orders, old and new, and uh, uh, another volume on uh, the, the, uh, the world, world order uh, year 501, referring to 1492 plus, plus uh, one, or 1500 plus one, really. Um, but uh, the, uh, the present uh, uh, discussion, and now let's see, I've lost the exact title after carefully setting it aside. It's, uh, but it's on, uh, it's on uh, democracy and uh, uh, public opinion, and uh, now we'll uh, pass it on to the man who can really uh, present it to you, Noam Chomsky. Thanks, Ben. This thing. Do you need this, actually? Yeah. Uh, should I use it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this one's all right? Pull it in? Closer? Like that? Yeah. Okay. Don't be scared of all the wires. Uh, the, uh, uh, this, the topic which I, I was going to talk about is pretty broad. It's uh, about democracy and markets and the way the world order is evolving. Uh, there is a kind of a standard version on this, which I won't waste much time on. You've heard it and seen it often. Uh, the standard version is that there's a sharp break taking place in the nature of world order. There's a new era opening, uh, which is an era of great promise for the growth of markets and uh, um, growth of democracy. Um, the United States has won a major victory. The Cold War, say, 1989, definitive end symbolizes the break and the uh, uh, new opening. Uh, the, there are other processes. The uh, process of uh, globalization has changed the nature of the world radically, and uh, 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 there's uh, uh, minimization of the state and an increase in market uh, relations and so on. That's the general picture. Uh, it's even a uh, even formalized as the Clinton Doctrine. Uh, the uh, National Security Advisor a couple of years ago, Anthony Lake, who's sort of the intellectual of the administration, uh, presented the Clinton Doctrine as uh, uh, expressing these views. His basic thesis was that <clears throat> until uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, the United States had been engaged in uh, containing the threat to market democracy, but now that threat is suppressed, and we can now go on to enlarge the reach of market democracy as, uh, as we'd been intending to do all along and are now free to do. Uh, I think there's a good deal of reason for skepticism about the every aspect of this picture, uh, every aspect. Uh, some of the aspects of the picture are just flat wrong uh, by uh, everyone's agreement. Others are at least debatable. Uh, so it takes a minimization of the state. One of the main features of contemporary doctrine is that uh, the day of the large active state is over and that we have to minimize the state and move to more market principles. Uh, you can get an estimate as to the accuracy of that in the latest uh, 
uh, annual volume of the World Bank uh, uh, Development Report. They, every year, come out with their flagship publication, uh, a lot of fanfare and so on, it's supposed to represent mainstream economic thinking. Kind of interesting because it rapidly oscillates from one year to the next, which may tell you something. Uh, this year is about um, the state and markets, and they just they give some data on the uh, ratio of state expenditures to GNP worldwide, and uh, it shows what people should have known. Uh, it's differentiated. There are some areas of the world where, in fact, the state is being minimized that is reducing relative to GNP, namely those areas that have been under the influence and control of the international financial institutions in the United States, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. In those areas, in fact, uh, state expenditures relative to GNP are low and declining, and they're also all economic disasters. Uh, in the rich countries, uh, OECD countries, uh, that's the place where the ratio of state expenditures to GNP is the highest, and it's been going up. went up quite sharply in the 1980s. It's still going up, though less sharply. Uh, in the Asian growth area, which has been essentially out of World Bank uh, U.S. domination, uh, state expenditures relative to GNP have been going up. Uh, they're not as high as the rich countries, but going up. So what you do have, there is a picture. Uh, namely, the place where the international institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, U.S. government, in the areas where they can pretty much control policy, the state is indeed declining. It was always lower. It's getting still lower. Uh, and in fact, there's a, a poverty is increasing in absolute terms as well as relative terms. And in general, there's an economic disaster except for a small sector of the population. Uh, in the rich countries, exactly the opposite is happening. Um, one might want to draw some conclusions from that. The World Bank doesn't. Uh, but anyway, those are the data about minimization of the state. Uh, what about markets? Is this a period of uh, growth of markets? Well, no. And in fact, it's known not to be. Uh, so if you look at uh, the technical literature by uh, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, international economists and so on, they point out, I'll quote the, one of the major scholarly studies of this by a economist of the GATT Secretariat, that the last 25 years have been a period of sustained assault on free markets, uh, led by the rich countries, the OECD countries, uh, with the United States far in the lead, uh, Reaganite uh, uh, anti-market measures. Uh, he estimates at about three times the level of those of uh, uh, other uh, OECD countries, uh, and they're very severe. Uh, this, incidentally, is quite well known. Uh, you read, say, the Foreign Affairs uh, a review of every year they have a review. Uh, uh, the review of the decade in 1990 reviewed the last decade by their editor. You know, this is the major establishment journal. Uh, pointed out that the uh, Reaganites, I'll quote them, that the Reaganites had led the uh, greatest swing toward protectionism since the 1930s. Uh, they had shifted the United States from being a supporter of multilateral free trade to being its leading challenger, uh, and uh, the facts do bear that out. Uh, the Reagan administration, in fact, essentially doubled uh, protection for U.S. markets by one or another device. Uh, they were more protectionist than all post-war administrations combined, 
And in fact, they boasted about this to the business community. They didn't keep it secret. Uh, and that's only one part of their radical market interference. They also poured state subsidies into uh, high technology industry under the usual military cover, and in many other ways uh, made sure that that uh, at least wealthy sectors in the United States weren't going to have to face market discipline. Uh, and that was part of a sustained assault against markets uh, all over from the rich countries all over the world. On the other hand, it is differentiated. The poorer countries, particularly those that were under the influence and domination of the international financial institutions in the United States, the ones subject to what's called the Washington Consensus, which tells you where it's coming from, uh, they, they did indeed uh, uh, open themselves up to uh, markets uh, with consequences that you can observe. Mexico was uh, the most recent example. Uh, case after case is a disaster for most of the population, but it's true that markets have been increasing there. Uh, there is also further differentiation. Uh, the last 25 years have been a period of uh, restrictive measures on trade, but great liberalization of finance. That's a radical change. That really is a change, and a significant change in world order, but it didn't have anything to do with the Cold War. It took place uh, starting 60s, but radically in the early 1970s, and that led to huge changes. So f for the first time in modern history, financial flows uh, have first of all been astronomical and very rapid, and also essentially uncorrelated to the real economy. Uh, so before this period, uh, say 1970, uh, about 90% uh, of the capital interactions in foreign exchange were related to trade uh, and investment, that is, the real economy. About 10% were speculative. Uh, by now, it's about 5% related to the real economy and about 95% speculative. Uh, the speculative flows are extremely rapid. About 80% of them have a turnaround time of a week, and most of that is a day. Some of it is even minutes, uh, and it's astronomical. Uh, it's just shot out of sight. Uh, by now, it's over a trillion dollars a day, uh, totally, you know, outweighing uh, the uh, uh, resources of even rich countries, even uh, uh, the European Union, and so on. So that's a big change. Uh, uh, but uh, and that liberalization of capital has increased, but restriction on trade has increased along with it. Uh, that correlation is well known. Uh, it's not a perfect correlation, but it's a relationship. In fact, the whole post-war economic system was built on that relationship. Uh, when the United States and Britain designed the post-war economic system back in you know, 1945, uh, what's called the Bretton Woods system, it was designed to uh, liberalize trade and restrict finance. So the, the system that was designed by Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes and the rest of them, uh, was designed specifically to try to increase trade. They thought that'd be a good thing. Uh, and in order to do that, to restrict capital. Uh, so their countries had capital controls. In fact, the uh, OECD countries, the rich ones, maintained capital controls into the 1980s. Uh, the, there are countries that didn't, like Latin America. Uh, they have, they're very free and open to international capital uh, and sub-Saharan Africa. So they have plenty of capital. They don't have capital controls. 
uh, and uh, uh, you can see it. Uh, the famous debt crisis uh, hit Latin America and did not hit East Asia, primarily for that reason. Uh, the capital flowed out of Latin America to New York banks and uh, to London and so on. The rich people sent their money elsewhere, in other words, uh, instead of investing it domestically. And the Latin American debt is not very different from capital flight. In other words, if they kept their money inside, the famous debt wouldn't have, would barely be there. And that indeed is what happened in East Asia, which did have capital controls. Uh, it's all, it was understood by Keynes, White, and other designers of the world order from 1945 that these two things were generally an inverse relationship. As you liberalize capital, you tended to restrict trade and conversely. And that remains true. Uh, generally speaking, it's been true the last 25 years. Very radical liberalization of financial capital and the period of restrictiveness of trade. Even the so-called trade agreements are, in fact, uh, not free trade agreements. They have very severe uh, protectionist elements. I'll come back to that if there's time. Anyhow, the first picture about minimization of the state is true in a very differentiated fashion. It's not true for the rich countries. It's not true for East Asia. In fact, the opposite is true. But it is true for the poorer countries and increasing for the poorer countries. And that, in fact, is part of the Washington consensus. That's part of what's imposed on them. Now, actually, it's a little more nuanced than that, because another recent change uh, is that internal to the rich countries, especially the United States and England, uh, there is, there's an analog to that. So the state has not declined relative to GNP in England and the United States under Thatcher and Reagan, but it's shifted. Uh, it's shifted uh, to more and more service to the wealthy and less and less service to the rest of the population which is the domestic analog to the international system. So yes, there is liberalization for the poor, like, you know, seven-year-old children have to learn responsibility and, you know, get out of that cycle of dependency and face market discipline and so on, but not rich people. They have to be protected from market discipline. They have to be protected by uh, socialization of risk and socialization of cost. Uh, along with, of course, privatization of profit and management, but they don't want to face, uh, they have to stay on the cycle of dependency. Uh, and that's become very striking uh, in the Reagan and Thatcher years. Uh, the, uh, so after 17 years of Thatcher, uh, state expenditures relative to GNP were exactly what they were when she came in. Uh, but the ch shift in the way the state was functioning was quite substantial. So there was a very sharp increase in poverty, an increase in millions of children in poverty, hunger that hadn't been seen for 50, 60 years, childhood diseases that had been over declining and essentially overcome are now back. Uh, and it's a kind of a Dickensian picture. Uh, at the same time, state expenditures are being used to, uh, in fact, illegally, they keep having scandals to, uh, you know, uh, uh, subsidize uh, aerospace exports and so on and so forth. That's a shift. Same here. I mean, we're all familiar with it, so I don't have to talk about it. Uh, but there's been a very sharp shift internally in the United States. In fact, you see it quite strikingly by looking at, uh, everyone knows that, should know at least, that the United States has by far the highest level of inequality of any industrial society. 
and in fact, it's been after having declined from about 1945 till around 1970, it's been increasing, and it's now back to what it was around the 1920s, uh, and still going up. Uh, but that uh, picture is not. Uh, it, 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 it's true, but it's, again, good to disaggregate it, break it up into its components. Uh, the uh, participation in the economy, uh, what's called the market economy, but that's misleading, but what's participation in the economy leads to a certain distribution of income, okay? So, you know, you have a job and spend money and so on. That leads to a certain distribution of income. Then comes a second factor, a social policy which is taxes and transfers, okay? So it's called government action, but in fact it's social policy. Uh, and the more democratic the society, the more people participate. Uh, so when, uh, if you look at, if you compare the United States with other industrial societies in market outcomes, uh, what's the inequality there? Well, it's about the same as other societies. So we're, the United States ranks along with the other industrial societies in terms of distribution of income uh, from market outcomes. If you add the effect of social policy, the United States diverges radically. That's where the divergence comes in. So you take into account taxes and transfers, you find the inequality growing very sharply because that's the nature of social policy in the United States, increasingly in England, uh, and that's the fake Reagan-Thatcher revolution. It's carried, they're not, it's not totally there, but they sort of symbolize it. Uh, well, okay, those are decisions. You know, they're not laws of nature, as you can see from the fact that they don't happen in other similar societies. Uh, but this is real, and it's in fact a domestic variant of the international picture that I just briefly sketched. Uh, there couldn't be a better symbol of this than uh, Newt Gingrich, who's the leading, you know, no, no one is more passionate about the need to break the uh, you know, the cycle of dependency and learn responsibility and all this sort of thing, but not the people in the district that he represents. Uh, Cook County, Georgia, a very rich uh, suburb of Atlanta, uh, he manages to maintain the record for bringing federal subsidies to his district. Uh, he's maintained it for some years uh, because there, the rich folk in Cook County, they have to be be saved from market discipline. They have to maintain the cycle of dependency. Uh, just uh, the last, uh, just as the last budget went through, he managed to sneak in another half billion dollars for his favorite local charity, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, which uh, uh, has corporate headquarters down there, uh, and uh, and that's standard. I mean, this is like you know, sort of symbolizes it, but the, poly but the picture is quite general. Uh, and it's a picture you see all around you. You walk a couple of blocks towards Roxbury, you'll see it. Uh, walk a couple of blocks towards you know, the financial centers, you'll see the other side of it. Uh, and, uh, and that's happening on a global scale as well. So uh, again, in Latin America, there has been, an, which has been subjected to the Washington consensus and is quite open to international capital flows and so on. Uh, there's an absolute increase in poverty, uh, with only two exceptions, uh, Colombia and Chile. Uh, Colombia, it's largely because of the, the drug-based economy is a considerable part of that, and also because it maintains capital controls. In Chile, it's because, contrary to what you read, they have not accepted the Washington consensus. Uh, so it's not a free market society. 
they, for example, do impose uh, controls on short-term speculative capital flows. Uh, and in fact, their major export, copper, uh, most of it comes from a nationalized company, you know, which is quite efficient and so on. So they've managed some sort of nuanced form of development, whatever you want to call it. And though they're not tigers in the Asian sense, they're not disasters in the Mexican sense. Uh, well, that picture seems fairly general. Uh, and it's enough to make one think, at least, about the uh, sort of mantra, you know, that we're entering into a new period of uh, markets and minimization of state and so on and so forth. I think if you look closely, it's not that. Uh, what about democracy? Is it a new era of democracy, uh, the result of the victory of the United States in the Cold War? Well, uh, you can look at that, too. Uh, uh, for one thing, notice that to the extent that there is an extension of market principles, there's a decline in democracy. Those two things go hand in hand. Uh, when you minimize the state, you don't eliminate decision-making. You just transfer it. So it's not being made in the state system. It's being made somewhere else. And where it's be uh, the, the, you know, the story is this is a transfer of power to the people, but that's not even a joke, so we don't have to waste any time on that. Uh, it's a transfer of power to, to the private sector, undoubtedly, but that's not the people. That's uh, the highly concentrated power system within the private sector. Uh, so in fact, it's a transfer of power from uh, the state system where there's whatever degree of participation there may be, you know, a lot in some countries, less in other countries, but some degree of participation, and in principle, a lot of participation, in fact, full participation in principle. There's a transfer from that system to a system of unaccountable private power uh, where in principle there is no participation. So you and I, in principle, have nothing to say about the decisions of General Electric and Microsoft. You know, that's a matter of law and principle. Uh, unless you happen to own some stock, then you have as much say as the stock you own, uh, which means if you're in the top few percentage of the population, you own most of the stock and you have most of the say. Uh, but uh, there isn't even in principle, and these are unaccountable also. You also can't find out what they're doing. Uh, like you can't find, you can't read the, find the, out the books of uh, General Electric. That's a secret. So these are unaccountable private power. Uh, internally, they're essentially totalitarian. Uh, if you take a look at the structure of a corporation, it's about as close to the totalitarian model as anything human beings have devised. You know, with power vested at the top, orders going down stage by stage. If you're a middle-level manager, say you take your orders from above and you hand them down below, as in totalitarian systems, say Stalinist Russia, there's some interaction, you know, like nothing's totally rigid, uh, and other influences, but it's, a, as I say, about as close to the totalitarian ideal as humans have constructed, uh, and unaccountable, uh, and uh, that's where powers, that's where decisions are transferred. So to the extent that these processes are taking place, yeah, it's, a, it's an attack on democracy virtually by definition. Uh, and the efforts to move things in that direction are an attempt to increase that. Uh, but even beyond that, let's just take a look at democracy within the state sector, so formal democracy like voting rights and that kind of thing. Uh, here there's, it's a mixed story. Uh, so take, take the regions where the U.S has been influential. That's primarily the Western Hemisphere. That's the place to look to check the theory that there's been a victory for democracy. We've been trying to 
contain threats to it. Now we enlarge its scope. So we can look at the Western Hemisphere. Well, that's been studied, studied rather well. There's good scholarship on it. Uh, the best scholarly work on the topic is, uh, the most extensive, is, and it's good, is by uh, Thomas Carruthers, who's a Latin American specialist, who has the advantage of uh, also writing from an insider's perspective, uh, because he was in the Reagan administration in the State Department uh, working on democracy enhancement programs. That was the period of the great victory of democracy in Latin America. He was working on it in the middle, and he's now writing about it as a scholar. And his review, I think, is basically accurate. Uh, he points out that there indeed was an increase in democracy, formal democracy, in, La in Latin America, and it was in inverse correlation to U.S. influence. That is, the greater the U.S. influence, the less the increase in democracy. So there was an increase in democracy in the southern cone, you know, South America, like Argentina, Brazil, Chile. Now, the Reagan administration opposed it, uh, but once it proved irresistible, they sort of went along with it and, in fact, even took credit for it. So in the regions of the least influence, uh, there was an extension of democracy. In the regions of the most influence, which is nearby, you know, the traditional area of U.S. domination, the Caribbean, Central America, uh, that's where there was least increase in democracy. Uh, there were formal democracies, but as Carruthers puts it, I'll quote him, uh, the, on, the United States would only tolerate uh, top-down forms of democracy, of democratic change, that maintained the traditional structures of power with which the United States has long been allied and maintained the basic order of uh, uh, basic, uh, fundamentally of quite an undemocratic societies. Yeah, that's correct. If you look closely at the region, you'll find out that that's what happened. So yes, there was a kind of a victory of democracy, in, which was substantial in the regions of less U.S. influence, was less in the regions of more U.S. influence, and in fact maintained the structures of the undemocratic societies and the same power systems, crucially. Uh, that was a crucial part of the move toward democracy. Uh, I think you find, again, an internal analog to that. I'll come back to it if there's time. Uh, the uh, the, the model that was given when Anthony Lake announced the Reagan, the Clinton doctrine, you know, the great new doctrine, uh, he gave an example, a prize example, to illustrate how it was going to work, uh, the new victories of markets and democracies. The example he gave was Haiti. And it's a good example because the recent developments there are post-Cold War, so one can't give any arguments about this was a reflection of the Cold War or whatever. Actually, I don't think those arguments work very well for earlier periods either, but, but here the question is moot because the events in question are after the end of the Cold War. And Haiti was offered as the example of the our achievements and the promise of bringing democracy and markets to a benighted world. So that's a good one to look at. Uh, and then when you look at it, you find it illustrates all the phenomena I've just been describing quite accurately, I think. Uh, when uh, in, uh, there was a democratic election, first democratic election in Haiti in 1990. The United States did not oppose it. The United States had its own candidate, Mark Bazan, a uh, World Bank uh, official. And it took for granted, everyone took for granted he was going to win. He had all the resources, he had all the rich people working for him, and so on. So everyone figured he'd be a shoe-in. So that looked like an okay election, uh, maintained the top-down structure of power. 
Well, to everyone's surprise, he didn't win. In fact, he got smashed. He got 14 percent of the vote, uh, and two-thirds of the vote went to a candidate nobody thought about, namely Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, who was supported by a, something that no one had noticed, namely a huge popular grassroots movement uh, in the poor, in the peasant society in the urban slums. Nobody paid any attention to those people. Uh, but they had been developing lively organizations and grassroots movements and so on, and a very vibrant civil society, uh, sufficient so they even swept their own president into office with two-thirds of the vote and no resources. That's pretty remarkable. In fact, that is probably the most dramatic victory of democracy in the Western Hemisphere in quite a long time. In fact, maybe ever, you could argue. Uh, but, or not just the Western Hemisphere. It was a pretty dramatic event. Rarely takes place. Uh, and that was an election, real democratic election, post-Cold War. Uh, the United States did react. It was extremely hostile. The United States moved at once to undermine the democratic government, cut off aid, except for opponents of, of the president, uh, supported bus business elements that were trying to undermine him. Uh, the, this is despite the fact that his policies were quite successful. In fact, mildly reformist policies, so successful that even the World Bank and the IMF uh, were impressed and were giving loans and so on. But the United States was dedicated to undermining it. Uh, you could see the dedication rather strikingly by looking at refugee policy, which is quite re revealing in this case. Uh, during the period of the brutal dictatorship that the U.S. had backed, there was an enormous flow of refugees from Haiti. People were fleeing from terror and poverty. Uh, they were turned back by force, uh, illegally. This is in radical violation of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, but the Carter administration and the Duvalier dictatorship made a, an agreement, which was then extended by Reagan, to forcefully return people fleeing from Haiti, uh, not to grant them asylum. And that continued until the democratic election. At that point, the refugee flow stopped, virtually stopped. It was just a trickle. And in fact, it reversed because people started going back. The Haitians started returning in this period of hopefulness. Uh, and uh, uh, U.S. refugee policy also reversed. Uh, it uh, reversed the, uh, uh, towards granting asylum to refugees. In fact, asylum requests were granted at 50 times the rate during the democratic interlude as before, because now they were fleeing a democratic government, not a murderous dictatorship, so therefore they were real political refugees. A couple of months later, uh, just to dramatize the fact, a few months later there was a military coup. President Aristide was overthrown. U.S. refugee policy reversed. Uh, now they were, people were re again fleeing from brutal terror. It was pretty bad. I was there for a little while myself, but you didn't have to be there to know how bad it was. It was awful. People were fleeing from poverty, terror, torture, and they were forced back. The United States imposed, and again, obviously, illegal blockade uh, to force them back, and that's still going on. A couple hundred were just forced back uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Well, that symbolizes what happened. Uh, when the military coup took place, uh, the United States made the right noises of the Bush administration about saying how bad this is and we're in favor of democracy, but they moved at once to support the military coup. The Organization of American States called an embargo. Uh, the U.S. instantly undermined it. 
uh, within a few weeks, uh, President Bush had exempted U.S. firms from the embargo. So the embargo was fine, but U.S. firms were not going to participate. Uh, the U.S. maintained connections with the high military officers, kept training them, uh, kept uh, relationships with them, was, had them on their you know, biggest killers on the payroll. We don't know the details of this. The reason we don't know the details is that when U.S. troops were finally sent in, uh, they stole all the documents uh, and are refusing to release them or to give them back to the government of Haiti. Uh, there are now still 160,000 pages of documents about terror, torture, relations with the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. simply refuses to release. Uh, Human Rights Watch, which has seen some of them, uh, says that they're being withheld because they would have embarrassing revelations about U.S. relations with the terror and torture. Since they're not available, I can't guess, so you make your own guess. Uh, but the connections are clear, as is the training and so on. Uh, furthermore, the uh, uh, embargo went, uh, undermining the embargo went far beyond exempting U.S. firms. When Clinton came in, in fact, the, um, uh, the um, embargo was further undermined. So U.S. trade with Haiti went up under Clinton during the period of the terror. But more strikingly, uh, both the Bush and the Clinton administrations secretly authorized the Texco Oil Corporation to uh, ship oil to the military junta. Now, oil is the centerpiece of any embargo. You know, no society is going to run if it doesn't have energy. Uh, and they're running on oil. Uh, the, uh, everyone in Haiti could see that oil was coming in, you know, like the rich families were building big oil farms and that sort of thing. Uh, but theoretically, it wasn't coming in. The CIA was testifying for con to Congress that it had been cut off. It was plainly coming in. Uh, and at, as the, the, in fact, the day before the U.S. troops landed, uh, it was revealed, a major story on Associated Press, a uh, major leak from the Justice Department, that both the Bush and the Clinton administrations had, in fact, informed the Texco oil company that shipments of oil would be illegal, but that they would, wouldn't do anything about it. So in other words, go ahead. So oil went in. Uh, in fact, there was no embargo. Uh, after the population had been subjected to three years of terror and torture in the expectation that the popular civil society would be wiped out, or intimidated at least, uh, U.S. troops did go in to restore democracy. Uh, what they restored was the uh, policies of, of the candidate who had been lost, who had lost the election in 1990. Uh, our President Aristide was allowed to return, uh, but on condition explicit condition uh, that he accept an economic, a social and economic program written in Washington, uh, which the core element of which was that uh, uh, the resources of the reconstituted government would have to be directed primarily to civil society, particularly private, the private sector, both native and foreign. So that, spell that out. The private sector native means the rich folk up in the hills who were supporting the military coup. They get the resources and, of course, investors in the United States. So investors in New York are Haitian civil society, but not the peasants in the hills or the people in the slums of Port-au-Prince. They're not Haitian civil society. Uh, and that's the policy, and that's what's been imposed. Uh, if you look at the economic, in fact, that is the program of the of the U.S. candidate in 1990 who lost. This is being offered, remember, as the great victory for democracy. 
uh, and markets, which I'll come to, these programs are very carefully, in fact, again, it's not particularly a secret, like Strobe Talbot, the State Department uh, representative, when he testified to Congress, Congress was concerned that the U.S. might lose control of Haiti, you know, after troops withdraw and so on. He said, no, we, no, we will not lose control. We'll still be able to control Haiti through U.S. aid and the private sector. So don't worry about it. It's under control, democracy. Uh, the economic policies are, a, are picking up again from what they were in the 80s. Uh, Haiti had been subjected to very strict um, what are called neoliberal policies, you know, Washington consensus policies in the 1980, uh, U.S. 80s, uh, as before, in fact. Uh, aid, uh, the U.S. had declared that uh, these policies were going to be, you know, create an economic miracle, that uh, Haiti was going to become the Taiwan of the Caribbean. That's what they predicted, uh, knowing perfectly well that Taiwan had followed a radically different course. They couldn't have failed to know that. Uh, but Haiti had all the proper solutions, you know, open up your markets, cut traffic, uh, tariffs, uh, privatize, uh, you know, get rid of the state, all these good things, uh, and they did. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, there was, uh, it was economically successful for civil society uh, in the U.S. sense, that is, the private sector, both native and foreign, on the other hand, wages uh, declined about 50 percent, uh, malnutrition increased, uh, you know, suffering increased, and so on. That was, and Haiti remained Haiti, not Taiwan, in fact, became more so. Well, now there's been an interlude. The policies are being picked up again. Uh, U.S., there's plenty of aid going in, but very carefully directed. Uh, so a, uh, about, for the overwhelming majority of the population, uh, their livelihood depends on agriculture and handicrafts. Nothing is going to that. There's no aid for those things. Uh, aid is going to the uh, export sector, uh, the you know, assembly plants, kind of maquilas, you know, the foreign-owned assembly plants, uh, where they pay uh, ridiculous wages. I mean, indescribably low wages, have horrendous working conditions, mostly women. Uh, so they get subsidies. Uh, the agri the, uh, as does the agro-export sector, which is mostly plantations and so on, but not the sector in which the people work. They don't get any subsidies. Uh, so there's cheap um, subsidized electricity, say, for agro-export and industry, but not for, not for the population. They don't get it because that would be uh, price control, and we're opposed to that in principle, at least for poor people. Uh, the, um, uh, before these reforms began, uh, Haiti was producing virtually all of its rice domestically. It's the main subsistence food. Uh, with, and that has a lot of uh, interaction with the rest of the economy. So rice production means processing and you know, commerce and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so that was a core part of the economy. By now, after the reforms, the neoliberal reforms, it's down to 50% and declining uh, with the obvious effects on the rest of the economy. Uh, the Haitian rice producers are supposed to open themselves up to foreign competition. That's kind of good for you because, you know, it leads to efficiency and the market and all that sort of thing. But there's a little footnote there. Uh, they're opening themselves up to competition with highly subsidized U.S. rice producers uh, whose subsidies, in fact, went up sharply under the Reagan years as part of the radical attack on markets uh, during the Reagan years. Uh, to the point where by 1987, 
u s rice producers were getting about forty percent of their income just from government subsidies and haitian peasants are supposed to compete with them because the market is such a wonderful thing and good for you and so on and so forth well remember i didn't pick this example this is the example that's chosen to be the prize example of the victory of markets and democracy and in fact it tells you a lot it tells you a lot about markets uh... market discipline is for poor people uh... not for rich people you know they need the protection of the nanny state and get it uh... the uh... Uh, democracy is okay as long as the, but it's not it's not assessed by process. It's assessed assessed by outcome. So it comes out the the way we want, leaving top-down societies with the power structure intact. Then it's okay. But if it comes out the wrong way, like if the wrong people happen to organize and develop their own policies and programs, then no good. Then you have one or another method to get rid of it. Well, I think that's what uh, we really find when we look at the examples that were chosen, uh, and they're revealing. Uh, let's look a little further at democracy. Uh, there is a, uh, there's a long tradition of American democracy, and it's worth remembering what it was. Uh, the United States is, is the country to look at if you want to understand what modern industrial democracy means. It has, it is, I think, it's fair to call it the most free country in the world, the most democratic country in the world. It has the most stable, long-standing democratic institutions. They go way back. They've been resilient and so on. So it's about as good a model of the ideal case, if you like, of uh, capitalist industrial democracy, and therefore worth studying quite carefully. I mean, quite apart from the fact that we happen to live in it, so we're interested, and it's by far the most powerful country in the world, so it matters a lot what, what it's like. Uh, and it's an interesting history. Uh, you should study about it, in my view, in junior high school, but at least in uh, you know, graduate school political science courses, but it's not really much study. Uh, the place to look at the nature of American democracy, the obvious place to look, is in the Constitutional Convention, the debates on the Constitutional Convention, which laid out the framework of what became American democracy, and they're interesting. Uh, they're not much read. What people usually read is the Federalist Papers. I'm sure you've read those. But the Federalist Papers are a misleading source. The Federalist Papers were propaganda, remember. Uh, they were written in order to convince uh, the public, who didn't like what was happening much, to convince them to accept the new constitutional system. So when you read the Federalist Papers, you're reading a kind of a watered-down version, a prettified version of the thinking that was going on. In the, in the debates on the Constitutional Convention, it's much clearer, uh, and they're interesting. The main framer, as you know, was James Madison, who was uh, at the sort of libertarian end and a very intelligent uh, and lucid uh, uh, analyst and exponent of his views, and his views largely prevailed. I mean, there was very little opposition to them at the end. Uh, he was quite clear on what he was doing. Uh, the model that they were everyone had in mind, of course, is England. That was the most democratic existing society of the day, so they were sort of, and the one, you know, their mother country. Uh, so they were they're asking, well, you know, what about the British parliamentary system? And there were debates about whether to accept it or modify it or whatever. Uh, Madison pointed out that uh, the British system would have problems if they tra uh, transferred it over here. Uh, and that is because the United States, they did want to make it, he did, he and other the other 
founding fathers, as they're called, did want to make it a more participatory and democratic society. But he said a democratic society has a serious flaw. The flaw is that in a democratic society, the people can participate. And he said, suppose what would suppose, he said, suppose this were to take place in England. Suppose, for example, in England, that they really allowed people to vote, which they didn't. He said, well, the first thing people would do would be to uh, call for what we nowadays call agrarian reform. That is, they would call for changes in the land laws, which would grant more people access to the highly privatized and centralized land system. And that, you know, land was a crucial part of the economy then. And he says, well, we obviously can't accept that. You know, we don't want to have any system that will allow people to participate and infringe on the rights of private property and wealth. Uh, so therefore, we have to be careful not to allow a democratic system in which things really function democratically. We have to make design a system in which power is in the hands of uh, uh, the wealth of the nation, quoting the more capable set of men, uh, those who uh, are sympathetic with the rights of property. Okay, they must have the power, and the rest must be dispersed and factionalized in such a way that they don't really interfere uh, with the rights of power. Uh, actually, Madison, who was no fool, uh, recognized that this problem was going to become greater as time went on, as he put it, uh, if I can read my own notes. Uh, he said there's going to be an increase in the proportion of the population that labors under all the hardships of life and secretly sighs for a more equal distribution of its blessings. Okay, there's going to be an increase in that. And if those people really have an ability to participate, they're going to do things which will infringe on the right of private power and, and private property and the wealthy. And therefore, we have to design the system so that doesn't happen. And indeed, the system was designed so that that wouldn't happen. That was the role of the Senate, was to represent the wealth of the nation and the role of the separation of powers, and so on and so forth. Uh, how well it functioned, you can argue. It's an interesting question. But uh, it's worth noticing that this idea about the nature of uh, democracy has a long, this, this problem in the nature of democracy, you know, that namely if people can vote, they're going to vote in their own interests and uh, infringe on the rights of private power and wealth. That, goes, that insight goes way back, goes back to the origins of political theory. Uh, so you read the first major book on political theory in something like our sense, Aristotle's Politics. Uh, that's a core question of Aristotle's politics. Uh, Aristotle distinguishes tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy, and has a long, elaborate discussion of each, and favors democracy. He didn't think it was perfect, but he favored democracy as the best system. Uh, for him, a democracy meant, it was very straightforward, it meant uh, a community of equals. Uh, or to be precise, free men who are equals. And that phrase, free men, is rather crucial, but put that aside for a moment. A community of free men who are equal and participatory. Uh, and uh, if, unless it's equal and they can't be seriously participatory, uh, he noticed the same problem that Madison did, exactly the same problem. He said, suppose that you did have a democracy where everyone participated, but you had radical inequality. So concentration of wealth. He said, well, then the poorer part of the population, which is the majority, uh, will use their voting power uh, to, for their own interests, uh, to advance their own interests, instead of the common good of all. Okay. 
and the goal of a democracy for Aristotle was to advance the common good of all. But if you had inequality, radical inequality, well, yeah, the majority of the population would vote for their own interests, which would not be the common good of all. So therefore, he had to do something about that. It's the same problem that, that Madison faced, you know, exactly the same problem, uh, but they reached opposite conclusions. Uh, Madison's conclusion was that we should reduce democracy uh, so that you don't get the threat from the population. Aristotle's was the opposite. You should reduce inequality. Uh, so therefore, the problem won't arise. And it'll be a, you could have a real participatory democratic system. So uh, Aristotle called for what we today would call a welfare state. Uh, he said that a democracy must be based on use of public revenues to ensure lasting prosperity for everyone. Uh, welfare state, in other words. Uh, and then he describes in some detail how you could proceed to do that in Athens. Do it differently here, but the same kinds of questions. Uh, and then if everyone had moderate but sufficient income, you wouldn't have this problem that both he and Madison faced. But notice that their choices were radically different. One choice was to aim for equality and participation in democracy. The other, the one on which our country was founded, was to reduce the threat of democracy, maintain the inequality, uh, and uh, ensure that power remains in uh, the Senate, you know, the capable class of men, the wealthy part of the, you know, the wealthy part of the society. That's now internationalized. So this huge financial capital that's flowing around the world is sometimes called by international economists a virtual Senate, meaning it has the power to ensure, if you really liberalize capital, to ensure that no country will be able to undertake social policies that strike at the interests of the wealthy. Because if any country moves in that direction, the capital quickly flows out of it, and the country goes down the tube. So it's a virtual Senate, you know, kind of a generalization of Madison's Senate. Uh, and the opposite of the Aristotelian conception of democracy is necessarily based on a welfare state and equality. Uh, to go back to that word free men, uh, a democracy for Aristotle meant men, you know, not women. Uh, and free, not slaves, you know, or aliens. So it's a subpart of the population, but it's a little hard to dump on Aristotle for that, since given that those questions weren't even addressed and badly addressed until this century, you know, and still are far from addressed. Uh, but that's a significant qualification. But the principles are there, and they come right up to the present. Uh, it's also been understood, and by now it's, and this, this, battle, sort of struggle up and back between the two conceptions of democracy is a large part of modern history, major theme of modern history, uh, runs right through the 19th century. Uh, it's hard to remember now, but in the 19th century, which was a rather anarchic period uh, in the United States, uh, it was uh, quite generally assumed that you not only had to have an equal and participatory society, but you couldn't, but that even wage labor was uh, a, an intolerable infringement on human rights. That wasn't a radical position. That was the slogan of the Republican Party, for example. Uh, you could read it in the New York Times editorials in 19, 1870. It was the slogan under which uh, many Northern workers fought the uh, Civil War. It was Abraham Lincoln's you know, position. Wage labor is not very different from chattel slavery. 
uh, because it's a it's a fundamental infringement on rights. Uh, it was the major theme of the working class press, which was quite lively around this area, run by you know women from the farms and artisans and so on. Their position was, look, if you have a democracy, the people who work in the mills have to own them, uh, and you have to move towards real participation and direct control and so on. And that remained major themes of perfectly mainstream U.S. thinking uh, right up until the corporatization of America about a hundred years ago when corporations developed, collectivist legal institutions as they were called, which got enormous rights, you know, the rights of persons, but in fact well beyond persons because they're immortal and uh, huge in comparison with persons. Uh, that was sharply attacked by conservatives a breed that doesn't exist anymore, but did exist a century ago, uh, people who really believed in classical liberal doctrines, uh, they recognized that corporations were themselves a major attack on markets, uh, and that uh, um, also an attack on the natural rights doctrines on which, you know, conceptions of human rights and liberty were developed. That was a big change, uh, and it's again not graven in stone. These were decisions. Well. Uh, I haven't really even started in what I want to talk about, which is how all this looks in the modern world, and I'll stop. But let me just say that none of this is changing. It's all going on right today. You know? So you take today's headlines, you find all of this stuff happening. Uh, so take, say, the, let's take, say, the debate over fast track, you know, recent debate. Uh, what was the fast track debate about? Well, the way it was presented was as if it was a debate over trade. But that can't be right. I mean, it wasn't the fast track legislation was not about trade. It was about who participates in deciding what kind of trade relations to make. It was about democracy. Fast track means no participation. Right? I mean, you can it's perfectly consistent to be opposed to fast track and to be in favor of free trade. Right? In fact, it's perfectly consistent. In fact, that's not very different from the actual position of the opponents of fast track, although you wouldn't know that from the newspapers. So the labor movement, which is continually denounced, you know, because of its uh, opposition to trade and, you know, muscle-bound and crude, unenlightened tactics and all this kind of stuff, nationalistic, they actually have a position on trade. You wouldn't know it because it was suppressed, totally suppressed during the NAFTA debate and is still suppressed. But their position is that international trade is a very good thing. We ought to have it. We ought to have more of it. But it shouldn't solely be based on investor rights. It should be the what are called free trade agreements are really investor rights agreements, and the position of labor is well. There's something beyond investors. There's people, for example. Uh, there's working people. There's communities. There's the environment, meaning future generations and so on. Now, they also should have a trade agreements should be concerned with their rights, not just with investor rights. Uh, the reason for the opposition to fast track was, well, that's a way of avoiding all these things and ensuring that it's just going to be investor rights. Because if it's fast track, no participation, uh, just the more capable set of men deciding on their own without anybody bothering them, yeah, sure, it'll be investor rights, uh, like NAFTA, which is not a free trade agreement. NAFTA is highly protectionist in many respects, and it's an investor rights agreement. Uh, that was the issue on, at fast track. You wouldn't know that looking at the discussion. But if you just think through the logic, it's kind of obvious. I mean, fast track in itself has nothing to do with trade. It has to do with decisions, right? It has to do with democracy. 
And the question is, should the population have some knowledge of what's going to hit them and some voice in determining it? Or should it be done behind their backs by the more capable set of men, the wealth of the nation, who will do it in their interests? That was the issue over fast track. And strikingly, if you looked at the discussion, you couldn't see that said, although it's not a deep point. I mean, it's like a superficially obvious point. Uh, let's proceed. The crucial issue behind fast track, it's a fair speculation, since this is, there's no discussion about this, so you can only speculate. But I think a very fair speculation is that the issue behind fast track was not whether Chile should be brought into NAFTA. Nobody cared much about that including the Chileans. Uh, what they did care about was something else, which was unmentioned, and that's the multilateral agreement on investments. Now, that's no joke. Uh, there is a big investment treaty going on in secret. Crucially, it better go on in secret, uh, because if people find out about it, they are not going to like it. You know? So it's going on in secret at the OECD, you know, Organization of the Rich Countries, and the World Trade Organization. Uh, it's been going on for about two years now. Uh, being negotiated. At the World Trade Organization, it's going to be blocked, probably. And the reason it's going to be blocked is that the third world countries are, have a voice, and they're not going to let it go through, it looks. Uh, India and Malaysia, particularly, have been blocking it at the World Trade Organization. But at the OECD, there's not going to be anything much that will block it. I mean, there may be reservations here and there, but mostly the rich countries are in favor of it, uh, because what it is is a super investor rights agreement. It gives investors rights that you can't imagine. Uh, for example, it would give investors, foreign investors or U.S. investors, uh, the right to, say, invest, say, in this neighborhood uh, without any concern for uh, marketing restrictions, like are they selling hazardous goods or uh, where they put the factory, is it going to help deprived neighborhoods, are there going to be women participating, uh, you know, any, anything, just about anything you can think of. Any condition that a community or a country might want to institute uh, to determine how investment takes place, any social, environmental, health, other condition is ruled out. Uh, investors have rights to move assets freely, do what they want, unaccountably, and so on. Uh, furthermore, they have, uh, they're going to be granted legal rights that they don't have now, the right to sue uh, in, ca uh, in case they decide that something is an expropriation, that is an infringement on the rights granted under this treaty. Uh, on the other hand, so they can sue, corporations can sue governments, national governments, local governments, um, any level, but nobody can sue corporations. That's a crucial part of this agreement. It's one-sided. Uh, the suits don't go to the courts. Uh, they go to secret panels. Uh, arbitration panels made up by the very same people, you know, bankers, uh, investors, and so on. They make some decision in secret, and that's how they decide uh, whether someone is infringing on the rights of investors, let's say, by imposing restrictions on, I don't know, marketing cigarettes to children or whatever comes along next. Uh, okay, that's, that's the multilateral agreement on investments. Well, that's working through in secret. Of course, not technically secret, like, you know, you can find out about it if you really work. Uh, and there are protest meetings about it and so on. But it's been kept out of the mainstream. And it's very likely that that's what lies behind fast track. Uh, the OECD is aiming to have this agreement reached by May 1998. 
Uh, and if it goes through in secret, there won't be any protest about it. It'll be instituted, and it'll have become, in effect, a treaty. Uh, a treaty means uh, it's, it's very hard to get out of a treaty. That's the point of it. You sort of lock policy into treaty arrangements, then it becomes you know, harder to, for small countries, it's hopeless. They're stuck with it. The rich countries like the United States can do what they like, no matter what the treaties are. But uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it essentially locks them in. It's now conceded, incidentally, publicly conceded. The purpose of NAFTA was not to modify trade or anything like that, but it was to lock Mexico into the reforms, make sure they would never get, you know, they'd never be able to extricate themselves from the so-called reforms, which have been a total disaster for the overwhelming majority of Mexicans, uh, but have led to a very substantial increase in the number of billionaires and have been very good for American investors and so on. So the idea is to lock them in, and the idea behind this treaty is to lock everybody into these arrangements. Well, it's better to do that in secret, and the reasons are sometimes even given. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article on Fast Track in which, like the 100% of the rest of the press, it was deploring the fact that there's so much opposition to it because they were all in favor of it. In fact, all wealthy sectors have been almost uniformly in favor of it, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, and uh, they said that the problem, the Wall Street Journal pointed out that the problem is, they said that uh, Fast Track uh, that the, 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 he said the opponents of fast track, like the labor movement, have an ultimate weapon. Now, what's the ultimate weapon? Well, the ultimate weapon is that the population is opposed to it. Uh, and that's tricky. In fact, that's the problem that Madison was facing when he designed the Constitution. Uh, if you let that ultimate weapon operate, then it might be used to infringe on private, unaccountable private power. Uh, and that's no good because it might lead to democracy. So we got to watch that. It might lead to democracy and social welfare and relative equality and all those things we try to avoid. Well, that's, uh, uh, if you look at other aspects of what's going on, you find exactly the same thing. So I mentioned that the Reaganites were extreme in their uh, violation of market principles, as indeed they were. Uh, but it still continues. Let's just take some couple of recent headlines, and I'll end with that. Uh, the uh, few few days ago, or uh, about a week ago, I guess, in the business section of the New York Times, uh, there was an upbeat article uh, saying that for the first time, uh, you, the United States had taken the lead uh, in speed of supercomputers. So U.S. supercomputers were now faster than Japanese supercomputers for the first time. Notice I'm not talking about tomatoes. I'm talking about a centerpiece of the you know, advanced high-tech economy. Uh, yeah, uh, so now it turned out this year, uh, Cray Research, which is a big supercomputer maker, uh, had managed to produce a supercomputer that was faster than the Japanese. So we have first place. Great. Shows the miracles of the market. Uh, what they didn't point out was a couple of other things. Uh, a couple of days before that, there had been a headline in the New York, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, on the new Clinton administration decision to extend a Reagan agreement to bar Japanese supercomputers from the U.S. market. The Reagan administration simply barred supercomputers from the U.S. market because they were too good and were better than U.S.-made ones, and the Reagan administration, uh, the Clinton administration, just extended that with a new bar against uh, Japanese supercomputers in the U.S. market. 
And they, they, the Wall Street Journal said straight out, this is in order to protect prey research primarily, which can't compete with the Japanese. Uh, there are lots of other barriers. The, the virtually sole purchaser of supercomputers has been government institutions like the Pentagon and the DOE and so on. And for them, Japanese supercomputers are totally barred. Okay, so they're not even allowed to compete for that. That's America first. You know. So for the market for supercomputers, the Japanese are barred altogether. Now they're barred. The Reagan administration furthermore barred them from import. Now the Clinton administration has extended it. Uh, now, finally, Cray has better supercomputers. Why? Because they've, of the technical advances in massively parallel computing, which it turns out were supported and developed by the government, uh, by DARPA, the Defense Research Project Agency, uh, funded by the government. Government means the public. So designed, funded by the public, uh, right through the 1980s with large-scale new expenditures. Uh, so while the Reaganites were closing off the market to Japanese supercomputers, uh, the state system here, which usually works under a Pentagon cover, that's the main source of advanced technology and so on, uh, the Pentagon system has been, was created, meaning your taxes, uh, were designing and creating uh, new computer technology, uh, massively parallel computing, uh, which Cray Research was then able to use uh, to finally build the fastest computer after having uh, shut down the Japanese, cut out the Japanese, uh, and uh, continuing, because we don't want to take any chances, to continue to block them from the market. Well, this turns out to be quite typical. It's not a, if, if you want to, well, that would, I'll give you one last example. This is true of every dynamic sector of the economy, virtually every dynamic sector of the economy. Uh, Cray is maybe extreme. Cray is called private enterprise, which is partly true. The profits are private and the management is private, but nothing else about it is private. Uh, the market is government, almost totally government. The technology is state-subsidized, developed, and um, supported. Uh, but the profits are, and, and if there's any risk, that's taken by the public. So risk is socialized, cost is socialized, ideas are socialized, development is socialized, but profit is, and they're protected from competition, but profit is privatized and management remains privatized. That's very typical of the way the economy works. I said that was going to be the last example, but I'll give you one more. Uh, the World Bank Development Report, which is quite interesting, those things are worth reading, uh, they, uh, uh, give an, they are now in favor of what they call state market interaction. They think it's a good thing, it's a shift from before. And they give their prime example of healthy state market interaction, the way it ought to work, state private interaction, working at its best. The example is the internet. That's their example. Well, let's take a look at the internet. Uh, the internet uh, was developed for about 30 years, completely by the public. Uh, it, all of the, the software, the hardware, you know, the satellites, I mean, everything about it was completely within the public domain, the packeting systems, all the new designs. In fact, the, the only part that wasn't created by the public in the United States was created by the public in Europe. Uh, the basic ideas for the World Wide Web came out of CERN, you know, the Inter International Laboratory in Geneva, which is again an international government laboratory. That's virtually the whole story. Uh, after about 30 years of this, 
uh, just right now, the last two or three years, it's handed over to private power. Uh, so yeah, Bill Gates, who was typical parasite, you know, kind of watching on the outside, absolutely no interest, uh, now wants to take over the internet uh, and is heading to do it. And uh, private power is not keep being secret about what they intend to do. What they want to do is take this system developed at public expense, initiative, uh, ideas, technology, and so on, and use it for two purposes. Uh, one purpose is for what's called an intranet, that is to carve out big pieces of it which are simply used for purposes of corporate transactions. So if General Electric wants to have, you know, interactions between its office and, you know, New York and Zurich or wherever they are, you know, Penang and so on, they'll have this closed system with firewalls so you can't break into it, and that'll just be for them and similarly for other big corporations, other major private tyrannies. So that'll be a large part of the public system, and the rest of it is supposed to be used as kind of like a home marketing service uh, to try to turn people into passive consumers, you know, you in the tube, that's the social unit on which society is constructed. Uh, so you don't have to worry about interacting, thinking people doing really bad things like those folks in the slums of Port-au-Prince a couple of years ago. Uh, but they'll, the people will be passive and obedient and hooked on consuming for themselves and not caring about anyone else. And then you really won't have to worry much about uh, the, dang, the threat of democracy, at least that's the idea. Meanwhile, massive propaganda in the ideological institutions tells you all sorts of, teaches you all sorts of mantras and so on and so forth. Now, that's pretty much the way the story works, I think, at any point where you look at it in detail. Uh, so anyhow, my suggestion is take the slogans and look at them, you know, take them apart, see what they actually mean when you look at them in practice. Where do they work? Where don't they work? How do they work? Uh, what are the results? I think you find a picture that's very, very different from the conventional one. Certainly not the weapons, that we can be certain about, because they had the same weapons up till 19, almost the same weapons up till 1990, and they were getting them from us, and from England, and from Germany, and from France, 
And nobody was worried about him then because Saddam Hussein was a real nice guy. He was uh, one of our major friends and trading partners. Uh, George Bush, the Bush administration was in fact getting around congressional restrictions to continue pouring aid and credits on their good friend Saddam Hussein. In some way, it's not just the weapons that they weren't concerned about, it's also the terror. Almost all of Saddam, Saddam Hussein's a monster, but virtually all of his crimes were committed then. You know, the extra crimes during the invasion of Kuwait were very slight. As I mean, like the gassing of the Kurds, which now everyone is supposed to be angry about. You weren't supposed to be angry about in 1988 when it was going on, because then we were supporting Saddam Hussein. So it didn't matter if he was gassing Kurds or the torture of dissidents and the rest of it and so on. That was all while he was our boy, you know. So it can't, the, with a, we can rule a few things out. The problem isn't the weapons. The problem isn't the terror and the violence. It's something else. Uh, well, you can even proceed further. Uh, is it something that changed radically when he invaded Kuwait? Well, in a sense, yes. He disobeyed orders, and you're not allowed to do that. Uh, but did the United States turn against him when he invaded Kuwait? Well, you can check that out easily enough. Uh, the so-called war, well, that's a good name for it, but what's called the Gulf War ended in early March 1991, okay? At that point, the U.S. forces stopped fighting. Uh, Saddam Hussein didn't stop. Uh, he immediately turned to huge massacres. Uh, there was an uprising in the south of Iraq Shiite uprising, uh, with rebelling Iraqi generals, in fact, you know, trying to overthrow Saddam Hussein, popular uprising to overthrow Saddam Hussein in the south, right under the eyes of Stormont Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, U.S. Army sitting there, total control, you know, of everything. This uprising is going on. Rebelling Iraqi generals were pleading with the United States to just not to help but just to allow them to have access to captured military equipment. U.S. refused, flatly refused. I refused to offer them any help whatsoever. Sat by quite happily while Saddam Hussein massacred and suppressed the uh, uh, rebellion in the South. Towns like Basra were probably more destroyed by Saddam's attack, you know, under our eyes, helping him out tacitly, than even than during the so-called war. Uh, he then moved on. The same thing then happened in the North. Uh, there was a Kurdish uprising, same thing. Uh, United States stood by quietly. Uh, something different happened in the North. Uh, the North, there began to be some publicity. There was no publicity about the South. Besides, they were just a bunch of dirty Arabs anyway, so nobody really cared. Uh, the North was a little bit different. The Kurds are Aryans. Uh, so, and if you remember the uh, television reporting, not well, you remember that, but it was quite striking. I mean, television reporters would go and say, look what's happening to these blue-eyed, blonde children just like ours, you know, monstrous, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, partly just racism, partly other reasons, uh, the, the, there was publicity going around about these, the massacres in the North. And the Bush administration was forced to take some steps. Didn't do much, but they declared a no-fly zone and you know did some things to terminate the massacres in the north. If you look at what's happened since, uh, basically they're letting the Kurds go down the tube. They're supporting Turkish invasions and so on. Well, that's Saddam Hussein. Uh, is it? And in fact, uh, if you go back to spring of 1991, for not just Brzezinski, but even the mainstream press was pretty straight about it. 
Thomas Friedman, who was the uh, chief diplomatic correspondent of the New York Times at the time, and a Middle East specialist, uh, he explained why, he's a sort of State Department spokesman in the New York Times, what it amounts to. He explained why the United States was supporting Saddam Hussein as he was crushing the rebellions, and he said, well, I said, uh, we need stability. Everybody said that. The main thing we need is stability. You know, it's a good thing. Uh, so uh, what does stability mean? He says, well, the best thing, what the United States would really like, he said, is an, um, this is virtually a quote, is an iron-fisted military junta which would rule Iraq the same way Saddam Hussein did before he stepped out of line. That would be the top priority. But we can't quite get that because it's kind of embarrassing to have Saddam Hussein there. So the next best would be to have an iron-fisted military junta which would rule Iraq the way Saddam Hussein did, but with somebody else doing it. Well, we couldn't quite get, you know, that's what we're going to try to get. And the worst thing that would be possible would be a democracy. In fact, right through this period, the U.S. was refusing, and to my knowledge still is refusing, to have any contact with Iraqi Democrats. You take a look through the whole uh, period of the, you know, the build-up to the Kuwait War, and, you know, the Gulf War, and huge publicity and everything. Ask yourself how often Iraqi Democrats appeared in the United States press. I'll give you the answers. You don't have to bother looking. Zero. Uh, there are plenty of them. Uh, the first break in the, and the, it's not that they were kind of dangerous radicals or anything. They're mostly conservatives. So the head of the Iraqi democratic movement is a London banker, you know, Ahmed Chalabi. Uh, he finally was allowed an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was around April 1991, you know, after the war was over. I think that was the first break. And the State Department was saying straight out when asked, we will not have contact with the Iraqi Democrats because that would be interfering in the internal affairs of Iraq. And, you know, we don't do things like that. I mean, same. And so whatever is going on, it's none of these things. So, so what is going on? Look, uh, Saddam Hussein broke rules. One of the rules of world order is you do what you're told. Okay? You want to murder guests? Kurds, you know, murder dissidents, crush Shiites, and so on. That's fine, because we're in favor of that. But we didn't want you to, and in fact, the United States even pretty much told them, we don't mind if you rectify the borders with Kuwait. You know, like some disputed borders, okay, you know, move a little bit, shake your fist, and raise the oil prices. We don't care about that. But uh, taking over uh, a core element of the U.S.-British uh, wealth system, that's not allowed. Uh, Kuwait was, this is all discussed in much detail in declassified documents, which any sane reporter or scholar would have instantly looked at when the Gulf War began from 1958, when Iraq broke out of the Western-dominated system. There was a huge, inter you know, the tremendous turmoil in Britain and the United States. The documents are declassified. And uh, there was a lot of discussion. So the British Foreign Secretary flew to Washington and had big debates with discussions with Dulles. They decided what to do. And what they decided to do was played out almost exactly during the Gulf War. They decided that uh, the British should, Kuwait was then a British colony. They said they should give Kuwait nominal independence because that would cut back the th threat of nationalism, of independent nationalism. Uh, they were afraid that Iraqi nationalism was Nasserite, you know, it was part of the gem. They didn't worry about the communists. It was 
kind of a growth of radical Arab nationalism in the region, couldn't be allowed to spread. Uh, they then decided that if anything, uh, Kuwait is a major source for uh, British wealth. You know, the, the Kuwaiti investment councils in London, the whole way the Middle East oil system works is that the profits from oil have to go to the West. They're not allowed to go to the people of the region. And the role of the ruling elites is essentially to ensure that those profits go to the West. Uh, British Britain, which is the junior partner, gets Kuwait and a few other small places. The United States, the big guy, gets the big one, like Saudi Arabia. The profits come here. Uh, but uh, they concluded that uh, Kuwait should be given nominal independence. And if anything happens, even internal to Kuwait, uh, which affects British domination, U.S.-British domination, uh, Britain and with U.S. backing should ruthlessly intervene to suppress it. And the United States would do the same in the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. So if anything disturbs this arrangement, we will ruthlessly intervene to break it up uh, and restore order in our terms. That doesn't matter whether it's internal, external, anything. Incidentally, no Russians. You know, they made it very explicit there's no Russian involvement. Well, okay, that happened in 1990. Uh, so uh, Iraq extended, went too far. They didn't just rectify the borders, but they took over Kuwait, uh, and the U.S. and Britain ruthlessly intervened to restore the, situ the status quo ante. Uh, now Saddam Hussein has to be punished, because you don't get away with that. Uh, of course, the punishment doesn't affect him. It's, you know, what was called genocide, and in fact, Nobody knows the details, but the Western estimates are that maybe uh, half a million or more children have been killed and probably a million or more people by the sanctions, which is only, have only strengthened Saddam Hussein because they've undermined any possibility of popular reaction to him. And if there's any democratic movement that's going to try to overthrow him, that'll probably continue to be opposed by the United States. Uh, there are other things going on, too. Um, oil prices are fairly low at the moment. In fact, gas prices at the U.S. pumps are now lower in real terms than they have ever been since 1950, believe it or not. The price of a gallon of oil is less now than it was in 1950. You know, not numbers, but real numbers. Uh, and uh, the U.S., it's, it's often said that the U.S. wants to keep the oil price from rising but that's only half true. It also wants to keep it from falling. Oil prices have to stay within a certain range. You don't want to go too high because that's harmful to the Western industrial societies, but you don't want it to go too low because that cuts into the interests, to the uh, profits from, for the energy companies, which are mostly U.S. and secondarily Britain. Uh, and that's a big flow of capital to the United States. Furthermore, the profits from oil, like you know, Saudi Arabian princes and so on, make a lot of profits. Uh, that usually ends up in the U.S. Treasury. I mean, it's either in Treasury securities or in purchases of weapons or in you know huge construction programs for Bechtel or something like that, uh, or in just in U.S. and British banks. So the oil price has to be kept within a certain range, uh, and policy has largely been designed to sort of keep it there. Uh, if Iraqi oil started flowing into the market, the price would go way down. You know? uh, now, I, nobody, you can't, I'm speculating because, of course, these are unaccountable systems. You know, you can't, they don't tell you what they're doing, and they never release documentation. It's 
not like a government, which maybe 30 or 40 years from now I'll tell you something about what it was doing. This is pure secrecy. These are tyrannies. But it looks like that's what's happening. That's my guess. So how would that be used to punish a person who you need to ensure the stability that you want to Because they're still hoping for the first fist option, an iron-fisted junta without Saddam Hussein. And, you know, maybe that'll come along. Maybe some other thug like him will overthrow him, you know. To the extent that it happens, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, if, if there's a state airline, who's running it? Well, the people of the country are running it. Okay, but that's democracy. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, in fact, you know, whether the people of the country are running it or not depends on what kind of a state it is. To the extent that the state is democratic, you know, which is, it's not a yes-no thing. It has a lot of dimensions and it varies. But to the extent that the state is democratic, public institutions are influenced by or their policies are determined by the public. It's kind of like a triviality. Sure, but that's like saying that that's like saying we should we should try to get Hitler back, uh, because in a totalitarian state run by Hitler, there were plenty of benefits. In fact, Hitler carried out a social revolution. Germans were much better off than they were before. He was the most popular leader in German history right through the 1930s. If he'd been killed. In 1939, he would have gone down in history as, you know, one of the great leaders of Germany. Yeah, uh, Stalin also was a brutal dictator, but he industrialized Russia. You know, Russians were a lot better off than they had been before, the ones who survived, you know. Uh, and most of them did, and in fact, he was pretty popular, you know. Uh, yeah, it's certainly true that there are times when totalitarian dictate, brutal totalitarian dictators do bring about improvements. And that could be true of private tyrannies, too. On the other hand, you should also ask yourself whether it's true. I mean, is there evidence, real evidence, that, that transferring management from public control to private control increases efficiency? That's a little tricky, because when you begin to look, you find a lot of other things. For example, in what you find is that in places where the society sort of functions kind of more or less honestly and well, you know, say Sweden or Chile for that matter, uh, public institutions are pretty efficient. So there is no pressure in Chile to privatize the biggest exporter because it's very efficient. Uh, where there's pressure to privatize, it's usually coming from private power, okay, uh, not on grounds of efficiency. And in fact, if you look at the effects, it's very unclear what they are. So I'm going to take, say, the Brazilian steel industry. I mean, it, always, it was nationalized, always ran at a loss, okay? So it looks inefficient by some measure. On the other hand, part of the reason it was running at a loss was because it was purposely, by state policy, producing steel cheaply for the benefit of private manufacturers. In, in, uh, so it was a public subsidy to private manufacturers, which made the steel industry look inefficient, right? But for the economy, it might not at all have been inefficient. 
Uh, and when you proceed, that's what you find. So like in England, which is you know, a modern country, they privatized water, the water system recently. And by economists' measures, it's probably more efficient. On the other hand, people aren't getting water. Poor people don't get water, you know. Yeah, in fact, that's efficient. Like if you, if you had only one, if you were put in charge of the of the distri water distribution system and you're only, go you're an automaton, all human feelings are gone. Your only interest is maximizing profit. Well, you know perfectly well what you'd do. Uh, you'd cut out water altogether uh, for people who, you know, can't pay for it or are sort of not densely, not in some <laughs> dense area which has a lot of money. Why should they have water at all? I mean, after all, they can go walk somewhere with a bucket on their back and get water. That's probably uh, better by the macroeconomic statistics. So it's more efficient. Uh, and in fact, case after case, when you look at privatization, you find an extremely mixed picture. What you usually find is transfer of costs to the public. Uh, so take, say, privatization of roads. Well, you know, privatization of roads would mean you'd pay tolls if you're rich enough, and you'd go on nice highways. And if you're not rich enough to pay the tolls, well, you know, find your way down a dirt rut somewhere. You know, the total, um, you know, the economy might look much better. Gross national product would go up. Macroeconomic statistics would look good. For most of the people would be terrible. It's forced on them, forced on them from the outside, and it might be a good thing or it might be a bad thing. But you have to look at the cases. So, for example, just recently, uh, Brazil privatized the Vale, you know, big, huge industrial mining conglomerate. Uh, they sold it off to private power. Well, you know, that's the, a large part of the future of Brazil is there. Brazil has plenty of resources. Uh, the, there was an analysis of Vale done by, there were two analyses of the, you know, the uh, value of it. One was done by Merrill Lynch. That's the one the government was using. Merrill Lynch also happens to be, you know, the agent for a lot of the private purposes and purchases and so on. Another was done by the uh, uh, engineering department at the uh, Federal Rio, uh, University in Rio. Good, serious people. I know some of them. I was down there about a year ago talking. Very serious industrial engineers and those people. They gave an evaluation of Valley which was far higher, uh, taking into account future needs, you know, what would iron and gold and so on be worth uh, 20 years from now to the people of Brazil and so on. Those considerations weren't taken into account by Merrill Lynch, of course, uh, but they're real. Uh, well, you know, it was sold off, and now a private power will make the uh, profit. Uh, I can just tell you this much. Uh, if you look at the, take a look at today's rich countries and today's poor countries, first world and third world, go back a couple hundred years you find they weren't very different. In fact, India was the commercial and manufacturing center of the world in the 18th century. Uh, as late as the late 19th century, the British were deeply concerned by the fact that British textiles couldn't compete with Chinese textiles because they were much better and better done and so on. Uh, the, they changed. You know, uh, Egypt started to undergo an industrial revolution about the same time the United States did with comparable prospects. You know, they had their own cotton, big agricultural area, and so on. Well, you take a look at what happened since the 18th century. Two regions have developed outside of Europe, uh, the United States and Japan. They are exactly the two regions which were able to fend off European control, okay? Uh, the U.S. 
separated itself. Japan was able to fend off European control. Japan's had the highest growth rate in the world since the Meiji Restoration around 1860. The United States grew very fast. How do they do it? Same way Europe did, by radically interfering with market principles. So from the very beginning, the United States was super protectionist, had massive, you know, large-scale state subsidies and so on and so forth. Britain had done exactly the same. That's how it became the richest country in the world. Every other industrial developing country has done more or less the same thing. I mean, they use somewhat different measure methods, like Japan happened to be much more liberal in trading than the United States was. But on the other hand, it had, you know, more authoritarian internal systems, so they vary in one way or another. But Invariably, I think there is no exception to this, uh, they did it by sharp interference with market principles. Now, what about the third world? Hey, they had new, what's called neoliberalism is not liberalism and it's not new. Uh, they've had it rammed down their throats for hundreds of years and that turned them into the third world. Well, one aspect of that is the kind of privatization which uh, leaves power in the hands of usually foreign industry or their local counterparts. We've just seen it go on in Mexico. Mexico's had the biggest privatization in modern history in the last, you know, actually the biggest privatization in history probably is the internet and the whole telecommunication system. Here is a system developed uh, at public expense which is being given, you know, it's not even sold. It's not even it's not privatization, sometimes they sell it for something. Here we just give it away you know, to private power. So that's huge privatization. But in third world countries, I suppose the main case is Mexico. And in fact, yeah, it's true, the Mexican telephone company and so on, they're getting privatized. Uh, and you're getting a small couple hundred billionaires, you know, service isn't improving except for the rich, getting a small number of billionaires. Uh, wages and incomes have collapsed by, you know, can say a measure, but maybe 50% during the liberalization period. Um, in 1995, right after the collapse, uh, GNP went down by about 8 or 9%, still not recovering. Yeah, that's privatization. On the other hand, sometimes it might be the right thing to do. You know, like maybe it would be, but you need an argument. And the argument's complicated. The, the principle that says it's a wonderful thing, always do it, that's just, you know, that's not even religion. That's just pure doctrine. It's kind of like Stalinist doctrine. There's no reason to believe it. Sometimes it might be right, sometimes it might be wrong. Sometimes, and right or wrong don't, have, uh, don't mean anything either. Something can be right for some people and wrong for other people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no, not to eradicate. Well, see, the World Bank gives you two contradictory... Take a look at World Bank programs. They have two contradictory messages, totally contradictory. On the one hand, the World Bank does say consistently and forcefully that the path to economic growth requires relative equality, uh, human capital, you know, so improving health and education and so on, improving infrastructure and relative equality. Those are the primary factors that are involved in growth. That's one side of their mouths. With the other side of their mouths, they're imposing policies which bar all of those things. So structural, whatever, you, you may like structural adjustment or hate it, but nobody doubts that what it does is reduce expenditures for health and welfare, increase inequality, cut back infrastructure, in fact, undermine exactly the factors that the World Bank and the other side of its mouth says are necessary for growth. And privatization is part of that. 
uh, simply ask yourself a question. Who get, you know, whatever debates you can have about privatization, there is one group of people that definitely gain by it, namely the people who are picking up the pieces. Okay. Well, they happen to be the same people who are making the policies. That should at least cause some question to arise. Yeah, I want to make a comment on that. I am from Mexico, and uh, well, perhaps it's not statistically significant, but uh, prior to the privatization of Telmex, get a phone line, you could wait for two years. That's right. And now you don't have to. Myself, you had to give them bottles of alcohol. You had yeah. to uh, like bribe the workers to get to install a phone line. You could take two years. Mm -hmm. And now it's much faster. Right now, <laughs> who? Who? Or anyone. Yeah, anyone, except that for 95 percent of the population, it's out of the question. Well, Mexico has more phone lines now than ever. Yeah, that's right. It has, more, has, it, has a, it has a rich sector which is being well provided. But, for, but public phones, that's no, not happening. I, I worked this summer in, in the government state, and you can see all the poor people living in the very, I, I went like it. High school, I went to the Sierra. Mm. I had to walk there. Now they have phones. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't buy that argument. I also don't buy the argument it's, it's of, of, of uh, NAFTA not helping. Not, not, not helping GDP, who? Mexico's GDP that year, 34 percent went to exports. <coughs> if it hadn't been for exports, the economy would be really collapsed. Yeah, that's right. It created so many industries. Mm. Uh, so I, I uh, but hold. But let's take a close look. Yes, exports increase to pay up, mostly to pay off the debt. You know, for most of the population, take a look at what's happened. For most of the population, for in fact, average wages have declined quite radically. Depends exactly how you measure, but roughly in the 50 percent range, declined since the liberalization began. Malnutrition has gone way up. Uh, starvation has gone up. Millions of people have driven been driven off the land because they've been undercut by subsidized U.S. agro-exports. There is production in regions which are in the Maquila regions primarily, uh, which are, have virtually no linkage to the Mexican economy. They don't use Mexican inputs. Uh, they don't. Uh, the about the only thing that they contribute to the Mexican economy is whatever the wages are. Uh, environmental conditions have gotten much worse. But for a sector of the population, you know, the wealthier sector, surely things are better. That's true of every third world country. You go to sub-Saharan Africa, the same thing is true. There's a sector of the population that lives extremely well, in fact, that lives by Western standards, and there's a large mass of the population which is somewhere between suffering and misery. And for the wealthier part of the, sec of the population, there is no doubt that these policies improve things. It's the same everywhere. For that part of the population, yes, these policies improve things. Uh, when you say that Mexican, uh, Mexico is living off exports, that's true. Uh, on the other hand, the growth, uh, the growth rate in Mexico is much faster prior to 1980. It's declined since then. And you have to ask yourself what alternative policies are not being followed, okay? Of course, there's always improvement. You know, things always, uh, there's, there's always technical improvement, there's always more phones, there's always, you know, more airplanes and so on. What you have to ask yourself is, what are the net effects of carrying out this specific form of change? Well, it has varied effects for different parts of the population. 
I agree, it certainly has improved things for the wealthier sector, and it's harmed things for the for the majority. Well, I could I could say uh, what I saw is uh, in one state where I live, mm. in this last year, half a million people that didn't get drinkable water are getting it for the first time. It's a state of four million people. So uh, who are they getting it from? No, it's going up, actually. The t all over all Mexico, it's going up. Excuse me. Go ahead. The, the paper today You weren't talking about Mexico City, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, the, with Mexico City, it's true, the opposition won. But, uh, you know, you'll find places where there are, things are getting better. You find other places where they're getting worse. On the average, they're getting worse. Uh, and that's particularly striking when you compare the development of Mexico up till 1980, when it was, in fact, a rapid growth period, just, in fact, very much the same as East Asia. So yeah, it separates. Uh, but the, for people like us, you know, yeah, in most of the third world, people like us live very well. Uh, most of the population are like the ones in Roxbury. They don't. And for them, it's getting worse. Uh, now, look, I, in the case of, say, privatization of the Mexican telephone, I think you have to look at, at it on its own. You have to look at what the consequences were. Of course, it's an attack on democracy. That's by definition any kind of privatization is. But sometimes it could be that an attack on democracy is beneficial to people, and sometimes it might not be. You have to look closely and see what happened, where resources went, what the alternatives were, uh, you know, what people are paying for it, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's what you have to look at. Same is true when you look at, say, take right here, deregulation of, of airlines. Is it beneficial or not beneficial? Well, actually, there's been quite a big debate about that. I mean, it's true that uh, airplanes are faster, and there are more of them, and they're safer. But that was going on before deregulation. So what you have to show is that there was a, there's a point of inflection, you know, the things. And in fact, what you find is, yeah, there were changes, but they're in all directions. So, so one, of the, one of the changes, for example, is that the number of heart attacks has gone way up because people are now cram crammed into such close quarters that they end up with uh, embolisms. Uh, another is that uh, um, the cheapest way to get from Boston to Washington is probably through London uh, because of the way the privatized air fares work out. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of changes, and you really have to measure them all. Um, and uh, some of them are very hard to measure. So, for example, one change which shows up in the statistics as an improvement uh, is automation of uh, services in the airlines. It's like you call an airline office, you know, and it get, you, you get into an automated menu. And, you know, ultimately, if you work through it, you, if you're lucky, you get what you want. Uh, that saves money. That makes the airlines much more efficient because they don't have to pay human beings to sit there and answer your, your, what you're saying, right? So when an economist looks at it, they say, uh, a lot more efficient than it used to be. But that's because of the ideological technique of measurement. They're not measuring what it costs you, you know, a person who's calling up, 
to sit there for half an hour while you sort of wait for, you know, to get onto the computer and then to start pushing the buttons, which you don't understand, and they don't have your answer anyway, uh, and uh, so on. Well, that's a cost to a person. The cost to people, to users, is multiplied by the number of users. Well, it could be a substantial cost, maybe small to each person, but huge when you multiply it by the number of users. But it's unmeasured. The only thing that is measured uh, is the increase of efficiency in the airlines, which shows up in their costs. So yeah, it looks good. Well, those are things you really have to take into account, and they're not small. I mean, uh, there have been few attempts to study them. It's not a popular topic. Uh, but there have been a few attempts to study, for example, the cost of highway repairs as compared of, of, of uh, repair of cars. Well, the few, few studies are around seem to indicate that the cost of repairing highways is considerably lower than the total cost of repairing cars because of uh, hitting potholes and so on. But the second cost is not counted. It's only the first cost that's counted. The first cost is a cost of the inefficiency of government spending money on, you know, on highways. The second cost is distributed over the population. And in fact, if you really look closely, the second cost turns out to be an improvement in GNP. Because if your car hits a rut and you have to take it to the garage to get fixed, the GNP goes up. So it's actually an improvement in the economy uh, when the costs are transferred over to individuals. There's a lot of that that goes on. And all of those things would have to be taken into account if we were giving an honest, accurate description of these effects. On the other hand, in Mexico, I think if you look closely, you'll find that the gross effects are not in doubt. Uh, there has been a very sharp decline in living standards for the majority of the population. And uh, uh, in many areas, a dangerous increase in pollution, especially around the Maquiladora areas. Uh, there are places where doubtless things have improved for some people, as they had been doing before. And we have to know, we have to evaluate all of these effects. As to the effect of NAFTA, it was probably very limited. It's now conceded that the, if you take a look at the trade flows before and after NAFTA, trade did go up after NAFTA, but at roughly the rate it was going up before. There's very little change. And that's now conceded. All the projections are now admitted to have been false. And what is said right in the mainstream is, yeah, the purpose of NAFTA was to lock Mexico into the reforms. In fact, let me add something else which is less public. Uh, this was discussed in strategy sessions in Washington earlier, uh, the minutes of which are public. Uh, there was a major meeting in Washington in 1990 of top decision makers and Mexico specialists and so on, uh, talking about U.S.-Mexico relations. And they decided that relations were very healthy and very good, with, but there was one cloud on the horizon. The cloud was, I'm quoting it now, that a democracy opening in Mexico might bring into power a government with more nationalist and populist goals. Okay. Well, NAFTA stopped that. The main effect of NAFTA has not been increasing trade, but it's been decreasing the danger that a democracy opening might lead to that. So they can uh, pick, uh, say, populist leaders in Mexico City, but the virtual Senate uh, of international investors under NAFTA-style arrangements ensures that they can't do very much, so there isn't any fear of a democracy opening. My own view is that's the main th thing to lay behind NAFTA. 
as the World Trade Organization as the coming agreement. person who's got a PhD in linguistics be interested in poor people? I don't even understand that question. I mean, does taking a degree in linguistics remove your humanity? I mean, I hope not. Yeah. You shouldn't believe me. You should certainly not believe a word I said. That's why I was giving sources. Look them up. You shouldn't believe me or anyone else. It may, yeah, but I, you know, it, it may, but it shouldn't, yeah. Fifty-five billion to open up Korea to foreign ownership. Yeah, actually, but just in terms of scale, the bailout for Korea is not all that big. I mean, let's compare it with what's done here. See, uh, the bailout of the SNLs, which is one minuscule, insignificant part of the U.S. economy, was four times the bailout of Korea. That's the biggest socialization in modern history was the taking the SNLs, which are like, you know, it's not like a central core piece of the U.S. economy. There's little banks that are, you know, giving out real estate mortgages. Uh, bailing them out, uh, meaning bailing them out, meaning bailing out wealthy investors who made bad loans and investments, uh, that uh, came a conservative estimate of that is about $200 billion. That was just distributed over U.S. taxpayers because part of the system is that cost and risk are socialized, okay? Uh, and uh, that, that alone, that little piece, is four times Korea. Well, what's happening in South Korea, take, uh, uh, yesterday's New York Times had a pretty good discussion of it on the business pages, not on the front pages. If you look in the business pages, there was a pretty good discussion. And what they pointed out was, yeah, the bailout is a bailout of uh, mostly foreign investors and foreign banks and, uh, you know, wealthy Koreans who made bad loans. In fact, the chief economist of the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, was quoted as saying, as being very much opposed to this, because what he's saying is all it's doing is telling investors there's no risk. Uh, so if they want to, you know, lend money with a chancy investment, well, you know, if it works, they make a lot of money. If they lose, it gets socialized. So it, it, remember that these are socialized. What the bailout, so-called bailout of South Korea means you're paying for it, right? Even the stuff that comes from the World Bank is coming from taxpayers. So all of this stuff is being socialized, just like the third world debt was, uh, to make sure that uh, uh, rich people don't have to face risk. And in fact, the, you know, the chief economist of the World Bank was just quoted on that yesterday. Uh, jo uh, Jeffrey Sachs from Harvard, who's a big advocate of all this stuff, was also quoted saying the same thing. He's saying these were failures of private markets. It doesn't have anything to do with governments. These were failures in private markets, and now the public is being called upon to pay them off with the condition, crucial condition that you mentioned, and that's very crucial. South Korea now has to agree to abandon the system, which led to its phenomenal growth. 
South Korean growth rates have really been phenomenal, like nothing in the West. Uh, and they were done under a highly regulated state-centered system. Uh, as soon as they began to liberalize their financial institutions, they immediately started getting into trouble, just like Latin America. Uh, and now they are supposed to go the Latin American direction, sell out their resources, make, let foreigners own their industry, you know, let foreign banks decide what the social policy is going to be, cut down on wages, you know, cut, cut back on security of employment. Yeah, that's what they're supposed to do in return for the public socializing the debts, of the bad, paying off the bad debts of uh, rich people. That's what it comes down to. But quite apart from what it amounts to, even the scale isn't so huge. As I say, it's about a quarter of the SNLs. And that's a small part of the socialization of risk that goes on in the United States. Actually, it's not just the United States. There's a, the best study I know of, the only detailed study of transnationals by two British economists, uh, investigated the top 100 transnationals in the fortune list, you know, ranking them. And, you know, a long detailed analysis, they concluded that the top 100, uh, every single one of them, first of all, they concluded that almost none of them were transnationals. They were based in a particular country, and that's where their markets were, and that's what they relied on for, you know, subsidy and so on. Uh, they also concluded that, uh, that every one of the top 100 had benefited from state industrial policy in its own home country, and that more than 20 out of the 100 would not exist as business enterprises if it hadn't been for bailout uh, by the home country. That incidentally includes Newt Gingrich's favorite, Lockheed, which was bailed out by a $2 billion loan guarantee when they started getting into trouble. So nothing special about South Korea, except that it's, a, it's another form of socialization of risk and is being used as a lever uh, to turn it into Mexico. Can't hear. Iran? You mean internally in Iran? Well, Iran did have a democratic opening back in the early 1950s, and they elected a conservative, conservative nationalist government, the Mossadegh government. That was overthrown by a U.S.-British military coup, put into power the Shah, who ruled the country in a very brutal fashion for up till 1979, but incidentally with economic growth. You know, it's another one of those uh, brutal dictators who, for part of the population, was producing substantial growth and modernization. He was considered a great hero in the West. Uh, when he was overthrown, well, you got the Khomeini Revolution, and it's, which, you know, was very dictatorial and, you know, religious. I'm, I'm sure you're probably Iranian, I guess. Yeah, so you know ten times as much about this as me, so there's no point in my talking about it. But, uh, I mean, that's been somewhat eroding. And I think there's now a lot of um, unpredictable, well, you tell, you, you tell me, but it, my feeling is there's a lot of unpredictable currents going in different directions in Iran, which uh, could, are opening up the society. And so the society itself is much less fundamentalist than others that, like, say, Saudi Arabia. In fact, in many ways, it's less fundamentalist than the United States. The United States is one of the most religious fundamentalist countries in the world, you know. Uh, but... Uh, uh, they have a kind of clout, the religious authorities there that they don't have here. 
But I, I think I think well, I'm interested in hearing what you say. But to me, it looks like it's eroding. Yeah. But there's just a lot of things happening in the society. You know, there's a lot of cross current. There's uh, independence. You know, you see people. I see you see people publishing all kind of things you wouldn't believe, and so on. Uh, exactly where Iran's going to fit into the world system is a tricky story. The United States is trying very hard to isolate it, the United States and Israel, but they're alone in that. The United States and Israel are alone in trying to isolate Iran right now, and that, it doesn't look like they're getting away with it. Other countries are just, you know, breaking the rules. Can I take freedom? One more? Yeah, one more, and then freedom goes to leave. Just one more question. Well, maybe you could comment on the, the Harvard guidance privatization of the former Soviet Union? Well, uh, the system was set up in such a way, and the Soviet Union was is the original third world. You know, that goes back to the 15th century. You go back to the 15th century, uh, Eastern and Western Europe were sort of alike, and they started separating. The West began developing. The East became its service area. Uh, and the gap between the East and the West grew right up into early this century. The largest gap between the East and the West was around 1910. You know, it just kept going up until then. Well, in Eastern Europe was a deeply impoverished peasant society. It had sectors of wealth, mostly Western connected. It had, you know, artists and writers and, you know, an aristocracy who talked French and all the stuff we read about when, you know, we study Russian history. But it had a huge mass of people who were living in total misery, you know, and backwardness. Well, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution was, I don't think it had a thing to do with socialism or, or certainly not democracy, but it was a revolution of forced industrialization. And it carried out a quite brutal policy of forced industrialization, which turned the Soviet Union into a modern society. It's not third world, it's going back to third world, but through the 1980s, it was not a third world society. If you compare it with comparable, more or less comparable societies that we were running looks pretty good. So compare the Soviet Union with Brazil, let's say, another big country with a lot of resources, you know, no enemies in that case, very much run by Western power, first the British, then us. And for 10% of the population of Brazil, it's way better than living in the Soviet Union. For probably 90%, it's much worse than living in the Soviet Union. You know, in fact, if you look at their social indicators, they're about the level of Albania. You know. uh, well, okay, so the Soviet Union became a modern industrial society. Uh, mid there were things, it was beginning to stagnate around the 1960s for all kinds of reasons, uh, which people debate. By the 1980s, it was still, growth rate was going up, you know, still functioning. The uh, upper classes in the Soviet Union, which is the state bureaucracy, you know, totalitarian state. It was run by a state bureaucracy. They essentially made the decision to uh, dismantle it, uh, concluding, probably accurately for themselves, uh, that they could do much better being like the wealthy sector in Mexico than being like the wealthy sector in Russia. They themselves could be. So they return, essentially are returning the society to its third world status, meaning a sector of very great wealth, most of them old Communist Party apparatchiks, just like Yeltsin, you know, uh, who essentially sold off the system, 
uh, they are now becoming extremely wealthy, a kind of a mixture of the old state bureaucracy and new criminal elements and so on and so forth. Well, there's a huge flow of capital from Russia to the West. Capital flight is extraordinary. I mean, nobody knows exactly how to estimate it, but it's considered to be a, a measurable part of U.S. national income now. It's just capital flight from Russia, just like Mexico and Brazil and other countries where the rich people are free to you know, make money by selling off the resources or, and, uh, and then sending their money to the West. Uh, most of the countries, uh, the, for most of the population, it's been very harsh. Uh, uh, there's a, by 1993, there were already estimated by the West, by Western sources, to be about a half a million extra deaths a year just as a result of the economic reforms, which the West approves of. It's fairly substantial, you know. Uh, and so on across the board. I mean, very moving to a typical third world pattern. Um, what is the Western role in this? Well, to implement it. You know? Yeah, of course. I mean, Western investors are very happy to see it go back to that. Uh, you can uh, put a, uh, you know, a, a, a Volkswagen or General Motors or Fiat and so on can uh, put up an assembly plant in former Eastern Europe at a fraction of the cost of uh, what it costs for what the, the business press is quite frank about this. They say you can put up, I'm quoting, you can put up factories there for a fraction of the cost of what you have to pay the pampered Western workers. That's yeah, true. You don't, have to pay, you don't have to pay them anything like what you pay the pampered Western workers, just to, the same as when you shift the assembly plant from Indiana to uh, northern Mexico. You know? yeah. uh, and that's great for Western investors. Uh, it has the usual effects on the, on the recipient society, you know, divides it into a sector of wealth, a large number of people who sort of get by if they can, superfluous people. Uh, and yes, the West has implemented it. The specific programs that were developed, say, Sachs's program, also were designed to break up the interactions among the Soviet, the Eastern, the countries of the Soviet system. You know, they had all kind of economic, it was a closed economic system. And the idea was to set up what was called a hub-and-spoke system. So each Eastern European country would have independent relations with the West, not with one another. And the early effect of that was a very serious attack on the whole economic system. That's incidentally now rebuilding. Those links are coming back to some extent. But the, uh, essentially it was subjected to the same kinds of neoliberal structural adjustment programs as Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa with pretty similar effects. Again, you have to disaggregate. I mean, this Eastern Europe was not a homogeneous area. Parts of it were part of the West, like, say, the Czech Republic. And that was a rich Western industrial society. And it'll, with various, you know, failures and so on, it'll probably move back to that. Same's true of Western Poland, which is really part of Germany. Uh, but, and, you know, Estonia will become part of Finland, you know, a rich industrial society. But by and large, it's more or less restoring what it was before the uh, move towards independence. Okay, well, I'm afraid. Thank you very much.